0: and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. I had a COVID week last week, but all good, and back in the chair. So today we'll be travelling to South Australia. I spoke recently with Adelaide QC for the past 20 years, Paul Hayward-Smith, the initial chairperson of the Australian Friends of Palestine in Adelaide. That was back in 2004, and Paul is still a very active member of the association. He's also the author of The Case for Palestine, the perspective of an Australian observer, published by Wakefield Press in 2014. Then the second and final part of my interview with veteran US anti-war activist Brian Terrell And he continues with his support for anti-drone whistleblower Daniel Hale, now in jail in the U.S. Dr. Tim Anderson will be looking at the American empire since its founding, with research recently shown that since its foundation, the U.S. has conducted nearly 400 interventions, more than a quarter in the last 30 years and in the final part of the program we'll hear from public and academic historian Professor Peter Stanley with a focus on the Australian War Memorial and its failure to accept the fact that the frontier wars have a place in the War Memorial. Conflicts with stained this country for more than a century after 1788. But let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. He had a week off last week, so no excuse for not having plenty of information for us today. We'll see what his week has been.
1: A weak journalist, then, when we must defend former big supremo and minister for just everything else, scuttle them or Lash Sun, a.k.a. Scummo, from all these attacks on his renowned, his famous integrity, because how could he tell the other ministers, let alone we the people, when he couldn't even recall being sworn into those portfolios? Understandable when there were so many swearing-ins. And okay, okay, some people question his honesty Honesty, just because next day he explained why he did what he couldn't remember he did, but goodness me, only because he forgot what he said the previous day. People can be so cruel, can't they? Demanding he resign would, of course, be a severe punishment as he would disappear into the political abyss, clutching a lifetime of his massive parliamentary pension, a severe punishment. While his integrity is being a touch more than questioned, at least no one's challenging his reputation, which has been confirmed, and so we must for once disagree with the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review's arch-conservative political editor's headline on Friday, secret ministerial deals tarnish more Lash Sun's legacy. Of course not. They reinforce it bringing us to the righteous Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, suddenly critical of poor Scummo, perhaps conveniently forgetting that just a couple of months ago it was editorialising to us that we must re-elect the Minister for Just Everything as the Minister for Just Everything, which would have solved the problem, because then we would never have known he was the Minister for Just Everything, with Cabinet meeting at night with the lights out, so Scummo could keep them in the dark as well. But now the man-may-backed copping headlines like, My party and I'll lie if I want to. Maintaining that musical theme, what a difference a day or a few weeks of days make. Meanwhile, the Socialist Government, elected despite Lord Rupert knowing what a disaster that will be, is refusing to criticise Her Most Gracious Majesty's Representative. When you see him, you see her. Former number one trained killer David Hurley the Blame, General Hurley the Blame, who nonetheless picks up the week that was the buck stops here award for hurling the blame. Blaming poor loves the dear baby Jesus would never tell a lie, scummo. but we would expect nothing less than loyalty from the number one trained killer whose big role is sending the cannon fodder off to kill and be killed and Good to see the socialist lot who in a short time have shown that they just love a bit of train killing and train killer merchandise for refusing to criticize a big train killer, an honorable man. Interesting that a hitman paid to kill is a despised criminal, a volunteer in uniform paid to kill or order inferiors to kill is honorable. While on train killers, notice the train killing is glorious memorial in Canberra this week was tracking down indignity. Indigenous volunteers who went to Vietnam. Now it's not my role to tell them, but I can't comprehend why any first true blue Aussie person would ever volunteer to defend this country and what it's done to them. But as I say, it's not my place to advise. But the train killing his glorious memorial bloke said these Indigenous people had volunteered to defend true blue Aussie and. Could someone explain to us which bit of invading, slaughtering, and destroying in Vietnam at the behest of a U.S., of the U.N., of the U.S., of the world, which didn't like what the Vietnamese people wanted for themselves, was defending true blue Aussie? But back to the point. Like Scummo, I feel my incredible talents are being underutilised and thus I plan to declare myself presenter of another 23 programmes on 3CR and the clever bit is the presenters I'll be replacing will have no idea I've taken over their programmes. Ingenious, eh? To make my takeovers official, I'll get the station manager to endorse my actions and pledge her to secrecy as well. But Scummo's multi-talented roles are nothing compared to the week that was sport this week, with the announcement that Alistair Clarkson will coach at least eight AFL teams next season. The AFL admits this will create a few fixture problems, but none it believes it can't sort out. On a perfect weekend, they could all be playing each other, so Alistair will only have to coach at four games. The poor old coaches, well, not so poor, particularly Alastair, with his eight salaries next season, the panting, breathless footy journos who analyse it and coaches, like it's of world-shattering importance, seem to overlook that even if they won a Premiership in order, on average, a team would win one every 18 years. And the AFL wants to add more teams to make more money. Supporters are very patient. The then Parallel Minister for Fossils and Pollution, Keith Pitpony, was distressed that his approval for gas expansion off Newcastle was rejected by the then Parallel Minister for Fossils and Pollution, Scummo. But Scummo explained this week he had rejected the proposal in the national interest. Uh, But Scummer, you waved a big lump of coal around in Parliament, told us not to be afraid of it. You championed a gas-led recovery. A gas-led recovery was in the national interest, you said. And had I still been minister for just everything, that would still be the case. But this particular gas-led recovery was the wrong-coloured gas-led recovery to be in the national interest. Wrong colour. Certainly, it had a distinct teal glow to it. Oh, so it was the caring business class party in your own personal interest rather than the national interest. Same thing. Owen oh, Scummo's successor, Constable Peter Duffer's in depth comment It's time to, like, you know, move on. The new government also supports more gas and coal, but also aims to reduce destroying the planet by 43% within eight years, making the most complicated circus juggling act look simple, although one ball circling through the air reads, we will pay the big polluters who are destroying the planet lots of public money to destroy the planet 43% less. Because it's not like the big polluters have made fortunes out of big polluting, causing the problem for which they're receiving heaps of corporate welfare, like, say, sand toss us the public purse, which has just, quote, stared down fossil fuel activists and pressed the button on a new $3.7 billion oil project in Alaska, for which the true blue Aussie taxpayers will hand it lots of money while that repository of government largesse, the airline which used to be our airline, will be one of the biggest beneficiaries of even more government largesse, showing that the government is spot on in its more gas, more coal, pay the polluters target. And if that hasn't cheered us up enough, listener, a Bloomberg report out of London told us, it's never been a better time to make money by digging up coal. Why, lucky, lucky Glenn don't care coal, first half earnings surged 900%, real figure, to $12.5 billion. Evil China is boosting coal production by 300 million tons. Good India is developing lots of new mines. Saudi Aramco Pollution Co. announced a 90% increase in oil earnings. The mass of profits are yielding big paydays for investors, Bloomberg boasts. All the more reason why the big polluters need lots of taxpayer money if they are forced to stop what they do. Well, not forced to stop, but do it, not do it quite as much. And and yet the same report reckoned all this made the Paris targets almost impossible. What it shows is obvious. Irresponsible governments are not providing nearly enough corporate welfare for the planet's responsible huge polluters. Oh, and if all that hasn't cheered us up enough, over in the US of, they've formed a Clean Hydrogen Future Coalition. Doesn't that sound promising, benign? Well, it would if Shell, BP and Chevron weren't on the board and advocating that clean hydrogen somehow means coal and gas hydrogen. And if that isn't enough to cheer us up, Cornell professor Robert Howarth showed this would be even more polluting and expensive than just using gas outright. Oh, but but that suggests highly respectable great transnational corporations like Shell, BP and Chevron would resort to greenwashing. Shame, Cornell Professor, shame. And back here, a not-so-evil union, the AWU, has passed a resolution opposing all hydrogen being green. We prioritise the scaling up of hydrogen, irrespective of type, to maximise the opportunity for the hydrogen exporting economy. We can't let greed activists control the national conversation it displayed its concern for the planet. Oh, silly me. All of the above share our concern for the planet, but... Despite all these massive, filthy, obscene stuff the planet profits, sadly, the time is still not right for lazy avaricious workers to get a pay rise, and even more sadly, the real evil unions are no less evil. Forcing that determinant of all that is good in this country, our old mate Innes, will cost the workers of the Trublowazi Industry Profits Group to attack a thoughtless anti Trublowazi proposal by the ACTU that wages should be lifted in return for for increasing the permanent migration intake. With his usual impeccable logic and concern for all of us, Innes said this was impractical and would wreck the skilled visa system. It could well mean we have to pay them. He was distraught showing how cruel the evil unions can be and the totally neutral only cares for all of us to Aussie chamber of commerce and industry profits backed Innes' wise words. The wage increase would kill True Blue Aussies' migration programme overnight. Supremo Andrew McKill Wages revealed the depth of the problem. It exposes the divisive class paranoia of the ACTU that it would think that caring employers would for one second even consider exploiting migrant workers. Let's hope the evil unions show a bit more give-and-take with the caring employer's sensible proposals at the Job Summit Accord Mark II. It's already been a clash between that Sully McManus of the ACTU and the highly responsible, caring for all of us, Supremo of the Productivity Commission, Michael Bring-on-Profits. Now, of those two, who do we trust? The non-partisan Productivity Commission, of course. See, she says wages are not keeping up with productivity, while he says low wages are because of a lack of productivity, and she used a comparison of productivity against the wage price index, and he said, and this is where he proved his argument, the comparison does not tell the full story, case closed, don't even need an explanation, hasn't that put the evil unions in their place? Speaking of place, the Coles to Newcastle Award of the Week to salt, sugar and fat franchise Domino on the Nose, which last week closed its so-called pizza franchises in Italy. Italy! (laughs) Can't understand why the Italians would reject Domino on the Nose and keep eating the real thing. What were they thinking in the first place? Finally, the... Hang on, I've been handed a note. Oh, it's from the station manager, obviously endorsing my clever idea. Let's see. Oh no, this is ridiculous. It's got to be a mistake. No way, you idiot. You've got to be joking. What? Our listener knows there's never any joking on this segment. Look, I think I'll show her. I'll take a job, but I just won't bother to tell her. (laughs) Good afternoon.
0: And that, of course, was Mr. Kevin Healy. And if you want to hear more of Kevin and the crew this tomorrow morning for City Limits and that's between 9 and 10am here on 3CR 855 AM. You can hear us streaming on 3cr.org.au or you can join the podcast also at 3cr.org.au Carl Pannuzzo's Feel Good Choir, Calmar Pratik Saurav,
2: Yaqui Vallejo's Sonidos del
0: Alma, and many more will sing three songs for 3CR on Friday the 26th of August at One Mark Street, North Fitzroy. Come along and support Music Sans Frontier on 3CR and Melbourne's boldest community broadcaster. Three songs for 3CR. 7.30pm, Friday the 26th of August. 1 Mark Street, North Fitzroy, www.boite.com.au, The Boat, a 3CR supporter. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit CinemaNova favourites with a curated programme of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Sipalla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter.
3: Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news. Current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial.
4: Hi there, music lovers. It's Jane.
2: And
5: Joe here from Music Music Matters.
4: Matters. We're here to remind and encourage you to either renew or subscribe to this extraordinary volunteer-based community radio station that is 3CR. Why?
0: Well, for over 45 years, since
4: 1976, it has provided a space for underrepresented voices and independent musicians outside of the commercial mainstream. We curate and talk to artists that entertain and inform you, whether it's personal, political or both. 3CR plays at least... 55% Australian music each week, but Music Matters is always way above that.
2: So the choice is yours, though it will be good for your
4: soul. $35 unwaged or concession, $75 waged, and $150 for solidarity, band or organisation.
0: Go online for further details. 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
4: Or the station during business hours, 9419
0: You can listen to Music Matters
4: from noon till 2
2: every, every Friday. Friday.
0: Most, I believe, major capital cities in Australia and others have a Palestinian support organisation in addition to Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. Today we focus on Adelaide and the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, an unincorporated association registered in South Australia in two thousand and four. My next guest is Paul Haywood Smith and Adelaide QC for the past twenty years. Paul, you were there at the beginning of a FOPA in two thousand and four. Who was there with you and and what was the impetus at that time to establish this association?
6: This is in the, about 2003 or four, it would have been and I had become a little bit known for writing letters to the editor on this issue and I was approached by three or four people, Bassam Dali, do you know Bassam Dali? Yes, I do. Um, he's a Palestinian or Australian but he was... From Haifa, and uh, Abby Hamdan, who's a solicitor in in Adelaide, who's Palestinian although she might have been raised in Jordan. Francis and Merlin Nathan, so they approached me. There's a group. of that, that's about, There might have been one or two more, and said, look, you know, we're thinking of of, of starting a a body to, in support of Palestine. Would you be prepared to? A be involved and B be the chairperson and I said yes to both of those in those days uh, Sam Shaheen wasn't involved, of course his father Fred was a great supporter, his father Fred had been forced to leave Jerusalem in 1948 when he was a little boy and his father Fred was greatly indebted to me indeed as a sort of a little story as an aside I remember Going to Parliament House once there there was a dinner for the Palestinian friends of of Parliament or something and Fred Shaheen came and I think I might have spoken at the dinner table and then after dinner he gave me a brown paper bag. It's the only time in my life I've ever been given a brown paper bag. Of course it was stuffed with cash. (laughs) Good on him. Yeah, so so that's how our focus started. What did you think you could achieve at that time? Well, I suppose we thought that we could make a difference, um, bring about, at that time, possibly a two-state solution. You'll recall that they'd had the Oslo Accords at the beginning of the 1990s, and then that the Oslo Accords were, were meant to result in uh, a, a retraction of Israel from the West Bank uh, periodically, and, of course, the Israeli government of the day reneged on each one of the commitments but there was still some hope that Oslo might be um, saved and I suppose we were wanting to have an impact on that We, we were basically wanting to support Palestinians.
0: And what do you believe people the the people of Adelaide knew or cared about Palestine in that day?
6: Of course our western media is supportive of Israel, as as is Western countries, the US, UK, Australia, Canada, Europe. And so our people are dumbed down and they're not told the truth and they are given a sanitized version of what is happening. For example, a classic example has occurred just just this last week with the bombing of Gaza. That was uh, an act by Israel which was said to be preemptive, a preemptive strike because it was said that there was some Islamic Jihad senior person who, who preparing to cause injury to, to Israel. Of course, there's no proof that's ever advanced of this. And then they go in and they bomb and they kill, kill 45 or so people, 16 children. But our press sanitises it so that um, the first thing our press says, the first thing our governments say, or oh, Israel has a right to defend itself. Well, to defend itself against what? Nothing was happening. Uh, and, of course, the Palestinians have very limited means. But compare the reporting of, of that uh, last week with the uh, comparable reporting of Ukraine for four or five months ago. Compare Ukraine and, and Gaza. Look at, I mean, Ukraine, the Ukrainians faced an illegal invasion and they, their people heroically resisted this illegal invasion and there were umpteen images of suffering all over our media and our television and, and every news item. Compare that to Gaza. There's no illegal invasion there. What we have is a, a conflict. Uh, the Gazans responded not with resistance, not with heroic resistance as the Ukrainians did, but with acts of terror or or militancy. This is the language of sanitisation by our press, by our media.
0: In these circumstances, how do you get through to the people then? What's your methods of educating people to the real story
2: well
6: of course personally of course I wrote a book uh, which I hoped would reach a lot of people and I understand it has, it it is really a a primer uh, on the whole issue so I hope in that way but what we we would in a paper really are wanting to do is to get young people involved you know When I was a boy, well when I say boy I mean a university student, a 19, 20 year old, we had apartheid in South Africa and my generation at at the university were angry and we were not prepared to accept it and we acted. We acted when the South African rugby team came to Australia and we, we, we demonstrated and we brought our government on side and our government acted. Uh, to its great credit. Now, there can be no question as to the apartheid regime and policies of Israel against the Palestinian people. No question at all. We've had findings by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, organisations of that nature, credible organisations uh, that uh, Israel is an apartheid society. isn't it? <laughs> No doubt about it in, in any event. So why aren't our kids? Why aren't our uni students out on the streets? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> but they seem to be more interested in the internet and so on. It's a, it's, a, it's a generational thing, I'm afraid, Jan. But anyway, we're trying to get young people interested and involved because it's their world that they're having to go up in. And for me... I can only see continuing disaster for the world if this state Israel is allowed to continue to behave and treat human beings the way that it does
0: well how do you approach young people or do you approach young people and the activities of your group do you get out in the street or what do
6: you do well we uh, our group FAPA, has got a subgroup within it, the BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Group, which has demonstrated weekly for something like 500 weeks continuously. It's a remarkable effort, an effort which, is, which probably stands alone worldwide. Uh, in in Rumble Mall and we have a resistance, there's a, a group of Zionists who always attend and 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 inhabit the fringes and try and interrupt, but it's amazing the number of people in the mall who will come up to our people and and express support to them. So that's one way that we that we are acting. But we we are trying to get university students interested, and we're starting. I think might have a little bit of success, particularly young. Palestinian or Islamic students who, are, who I rather suspect are, uh, because they're in a slightly different society, they're probably a bit wary and careful about what they do. They don't want to get into trouble or they don't want to, so on. But we're, I think we're starting to have some success there. Yeah, so, that's <laughs> so touch wood. But we're also getting some political support. I mean, we've had um, a meeting only last week in the South Australian Parliament with um, a group which calls itself the Parliamentary Friends of Palestine and we had representatives of the Labour Party, the Liberal Party, uh, the Greens and the um, the South Australian First Party which was the Nick Xenophon extension and there seems to be quite a lot of interest and we're hoping and they are hoping that they might actually move later in the year to a resolution in the lower house calling for the recognition by Australia of Palestine. Now, this is an issue that I think you may have read something of mine about recently to the effect that in 2021, the ALP National Convention, March 2021, uh, the national convention of rank and file people and mass, um, and they passed resolutions. Anthony Albanese at the time said these would be policies that will be implemented by a Labor government. One of them on Palestine was to the effect that a, a Labor government, when it comes to office, will recognise Palestine and will treat the issue as with a matter of urgency. Of course, we're nearly three months into the Albanese government, and nothing's happened. And this is a, another example of the lobby at work. The lobby uh, has huge power in Australia, as it has in the United States and the United Kingdom. And but uh, we're seeking to put pressure on the Labor on, on Albanese and the Labor government because this was its national conference, and its rank and file, its its people passed this resolution and when they say recognize Palestine they mean the only thing that that can mean recognize Palestine on the 1967 borders which the UN you know way back in 1949 ordered to be or delegated as Palestine uh, so we're hoping that something will come out of that but as I say, we are you know, we're confronted by the lobby now the lobby has on its side the Murdoch press always has had for some reason. Uh, The lobby has remarkable influence in our politics through financial support to both sides of Parliament. The lobby has paid for more Australian politicians to go to Israel uh, and be subjected to their propaganda there than any other country. Uh, has, uh, has has had uh, politicians or people in high places being brought to Israel uh, and brought on side. One can understand why Anthony Albanese might be a little bit cautious because one only has to look at what happened in the United Kingdom with Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Jeremy Corbyn was a declared supporter of. Palestine and wanting to have the recognition of Palestine of course he was in opposition but it very much looked as though he could succeed at the election where Boris Johnson came to office the steps taken by the lobby in the United Kingdom were disastrous for him he was painted as you know, effectively a terrorist for some reason gullible people believed it and he lost his leadership of the Labour Party. Sakir Starmer today is a total supporter of Israel. And of course, as a result, he has the backing of the Israeli lobby, the Zionist lobby. So one can understand why someone like Anthony Abbott means he be a, a, a cautious because he doesn't want the same thing to happen to him as happened to Jeremy Corbyn. But we must be bigger than that. We must realise that in our world... There is no longer room for genocide, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, indiscriminate shooting of children, and and there can be no question of it. Palestinian mothers um, who, who, who bear new babies are called a demographic threat in Israel. And by shooting children, of course, one is limiting the capacity of the Palestinian people to reproduce, ethnic cleansing. We have in the West Bank Israeli policy where they will declare a piece of land as a firing zone, forces to go and practice firing weapons. If there happens to be an Arab village in the area, it's got to be cleared out, and it is cleared out. And their hope is that these people will leave, go to Jordan, go to Lebanon, go to Syria. They just want them out. And our world, in my view, cannot contemplate that sort of behaviour. If we do, what is the hope for humanity, in my view? So there I've expressed myself strongly on a number of issues. Your
0: view recently joined the debate about the Israel lobby on pearls and irritations. It began with Bob Carr. He was criticised by Michael Eason. And now you have joined that, talking about the. Well, Eason says that the policy, the conflict is quite extraordinarily complicated. Will you counter that by saying, no, there's no argument, there's no complication at all? Can you explain a little bit about the paper that you wrote?
6: Zionists always say that it's complicated. By saying it's complicated, but they're saying to people, oh, you don't want to get involved, you know, you have to spend you know hours understanding and getting on top of it 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 is not like that at all, what we have very briefly is an instance of settler colonialism we had at the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century we had the people of Palestine who lived in Palestine Mm -hmm. whose ancestors had lived there for thousands of years and those ancestors, ancestors included Jewish people and they formed part of the Palestinian mass and they were Sephardic Jews. They were Jews from the Mediterranean area, uh, Spain, North Africa, uh, and Eastern Mediterranean, Turkey. And indeed, they lived in harmony with their Arab brothers, their Muslim brothers. We then had in Europe, at or about, you know, at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th with anti-Semitism rear its head and against what were known as the Ashkenazi Jews now the Ashkenazi Jews they were was, they was European and Slavic they were said to have come from Kazakhstan and in, in about the 7th century their leader adopted Judaism and then of course they spread through Eastern Europe and into Western Europe and they were known as the Ashkenazi Jews as a result of the anti-Semitism. At the end of the 19th century, there was a move for these Ashkenazi people to to go to Palestine to live there, which they commenced to do. And then there was some resistance when they sought to, in effect, control large areas of Palestine, and eventually it led to the war in 1948. But what they will say to you now? It's complicated because of the, the history that the Jewish people were always Palestine was theirs. Well, it, it wasn't theirs. And for, for someone to rely upon some a suggestion that God gave them this land is just ridiculous. Do you know that that today there is in the Israeli government one of the right wing settler zionist parties religious right as one of the parties says on the topic of a two state solution or a treaty with arabs there can be no treaty because god gave us this land and the land that god is said to have given them is all of the land from the great river that is the nile to the euphrates now that Piece of land encompasses a substantial part of Egypt, all of Jordan, all of Syria, parts of Lebanon, parts of Iraq. So, if these people have the control of Israel, which is a, a nuclear state, what are we doing? What are we looking for? Are we looking forward to 200 more years of what we've had for the last 70 years of Zionists slowly ethnically cleansing that whole area? of Arabic people because God gave them the land? This is ridiculous. And it's time that our politicians acted. And and the need is crying out. For example, a month or so ago, I saw on a YouTube film or clip a schoolroom in Jerusalem, a schoolroom of Israeli children, Jewish children. Uh, I think they, from my observation of them, because I've got grandchildren the same age, they would have been about eight or nine years of age, so so young kids. And one of the kids, and they, and they interviewed some of the kids, and they interviewed the kids and they said, well, what do you think of Arabs? And one of the kids said, we have to kill them. Another said, well, if there are any Arabs here, they can only be here as our servants. Now, that is appalling. And those children can only have got those sentiments, of course, from their parents. And to think that a society is being cultivated there in the 21st century with those sorts of views, we must fight it. We must fight it. But what you have to do, your, your listeners, is to say to them, well, you should be asking your your representatives in the the federal parliament what the government is intending to do about it. Now, when, when, for example, Penny Wong has been interviewed and she says, well, our policy is clear, we support a two-state solution uh, with borders to be negotiated. Now, that, with respect to Penny Wong, is an inane statement. When you have an Israeli government All of this year, Naftali Bennett's government and Netanyahu's before saying there will never be a Palestinian state. Now, what on earth is the point of saying that our policy will be to support a two-state solution with borders to be negotiated? As soon as there is any negotiation with the Israelis, nothing will happen because they will never, ever concede anything. So action has to be taken aside from any suggestion of negotiation. Australia has to recognise Palestine and then it must start to impose sanctions, in my view, on Israel if it does not end the occupation.
0: You mentioned the parliament in South Australia before and the issue of the IHRA came up recently. Can you explain a little bit about that and what the result of that vote was?
6: it was um, most unfortunate. A woman who I don't know, uh, who represents Pauline Hanson's One Nation, was elected to the upper house in the South Australian Parliament Legislative Council, and she moved a motion to adopt this IHRA definition. Now, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is highly contentious. Uh, For a start, one wonders why there's a need for a definition of anti-Semitism. I would have thought that People would know what anti-Semitism is, but it is a definition which adopts some 11 examples and five or six of the examples make it quite clear that criticism of Israel can be anti-Semitic. And of course, as soon as you have that situation, then scope is given to the lobby uh, and Zionists in places like the University in Melbourne, where it happened, uh, to resist any Palestinian support. Lecturers coming to to inform students about the situation in Palestine. It's regarded as anti-Semitic. So anyway, this uh, fopa uh, sought to inform members of the Legislative Council to vote against this uh, motion and we got a lot of support. A number of Legislative Councillors from the Greens and from other independents, spoke against it. And, and there was a, a lot of heated views expressed and a lot of feeling in the whole debate. It, had to be adjourned, it was adjourned, came back on, and, of course, everybody was looking for the members. And Labor members of the Legislative Council were, on my to my belief and what I've been told by them, were ready to vote against it and defeat it. Uh, but then, at the last minute, a directive came from Canberra, from the Labor government, and from Penny Wong. You will support the motion. And unfortunately, Labor members of our Legislative Council succumbed to that directive from Canberra, uh, and the definition was adopted by the Legislative Council. Now, of course, apart from propaganda, it doesn't mean much because it's not any form of legislation or anything, Um, but it just indicates the extent to which the the, the power of the lobby in Australia exists. And it, to me, represents the depths to which the leaders of our Labor Party in federal parliament are, are prepared to succumb to the directives of the lobby. This new committee that we spoke to a couple of weeks ago, they are looking to see whether they might even bring the matter before the lower house in the state parliament and they would of course only do so if they were confident that they would overturn or repute the motion passed in the upper house. So that was most distressing but we're hoping to get over it.
0: I'm sure you will. One instance of the work of FOPA is the Edward Sayyid Yearly Lecture. When did that start?
6: Oh, look, it started way back in 2004 or five, And we thought we had some wonderful people come and speak. We've had Noam Chomsky, Gideon Levy, Ilan Pape, Robert Fiske, the journalist from Lebanon. And it's still going.
0: And many thanks to Paul Haywood-Smith. It's talking about FOPA, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association based in Adelaide, South Australia.
2: Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio.
8: really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together. And the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples, This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front.
3: Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music, and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377.
2: We
0: need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory. Because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you.
3: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
0: Completing my interview with US anti-war activist Brian Terrell, we pick up with Brian talking about drone warfare whistleblower Daniel Hale, one year into an almost four-year jail sentence. Just stay with Daniel for a moment longer or the, the US prison system. I was listening to a report by a US official talking about the jailing of a, a US sports person and saying that what they were going to face in a Russian prison was pretty horrific. And I was thinking about the stories you've told and others have told of the conditions in United
9: States prisons. Yes, I I was in the U.S. prison, Marion, Illinois, uh, three times. (laughs) Uh, Very different circumstances. The first was in 1981 and again in 1982. And then I was there in 1994. And this was for three months, six months, and four months. So much shorter than, than Daniel Hale. And I was in different, um, levels there. And first time I was there, I spent a week inside in solitary confinement. But then I was in the, uh, the camp, the, uh, the, the minimum security camp. Because what this prison was until 1994, and I was there at the, when it was changing, it was built in 1963 to replace Alcatraz as the most uh, high-level security prison in the United States, and it's a very different-looking prison because there isn't a, like a central yard or anything. It was The prison was made for sensory deprivation, that the people who were there would be in their cells pretty much all the time, solitary confinement, and the only time that they'd be moved from their cells is someplace else would be, they would be in, you know, very heavy, heavily guarded, and all their meals and everything, they would never leave their cells. The situation I was in, they had to have prisoners of a lower level to do the cooking and laundry and all the things needed to run, shovel the snow, everything they needed to do to run. We moved them out in 1994 to uh, a prison in Lawrence, Colorado, which is more high-tech, where now these these prisoners, you know, they don't even get physical mail. You know, if they, they, you know, anything you send them, that would get the, a screen, put it on a screen in their in their cell. And they're if they're moved, they're moved by automatic opening and closing of doors. It's all automated. These men at Florence are never have no contact with any human being, and, and most of them will die without ever being in a room with another person. So what they did with Marion is they made it into, uh, what, a special communications prison until, I forget what year it was, but somebody exposed, there's this one there, and then at Haute, Indiana, somebody wrote about it, that every single prisoner in these units were all Muslim. The U.S. prison system was embarrassed by this, and they uh, put some others in there. And that's how Daniel got there. So he's not in solitary confinement, but he has contact with very, very few people but his uh, visits and his letters books everything these are supposed to be people who are a uh, security risk for terrorism or people who have classified information that to make sure they're not communicating that to, to the outside so the phone calls and stuff are very limited but it's absurd for Daniel for someone to be there you know it's very unusual that somebody doing a 4 year sentence would be in a prison like this generally they, they would put in that kind of heavy security would be somebody doing you know, many, many years or life in prison. Being a short timer he would be a very um unique person. So so it, it you know, it really is punishment. He you know, he doesn't have any information. You know, he's been out of the military and out of the, the security apparatus for some time. He doesn't really have anything more more to divulge. So yeah, it's it's punitive. And uh yeah, what he was doing, you know, these the prosecution started under the Obama administration, and 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 in many things, um, Mr. Obama promised he would uh, close Guantanamo and didn't, and he also said that he would take a special care to uh, defend whistleblowers. You know, he really appealed to the uh, liberal liberals in the United States by saying these things, but there is no no substance yeah you know, the prosecution of whistleblowers actually actually increased under Mr. Obama, just as the deportation of refugees increased, and so many of the things that uh, you know, the promises that Obama showed when he became president you know became uh, were moot. And so yeah, it was the Trump administration that finally put Daniel Hale away, the but it was all set up all set up before yeah. him by the Obama administration.
0: And we can only look on in horror of what faces Julian Assange.
9: Oh yes, yes, yeah. And the and the fact that the, the the United Kingdom is seems poised to there's some more hoops to go through, but seems poised to to hand him over. You know, these are things that uh, that we need to know. I've I've known um, Daniel Ellsberg for many years. In fact, back in 1978, I was just a kid. I spent two weeks in jail with him in Colorado. We were blockading the,
2: uh,
9: at Rocky Flats, that's where they made the, the plutonium pits for all the U.S. nuclear weapons were made there. And we were part of protests. And some years before that, he were the Pentagon Papers, and he was, the charges were dropped, you know, because of government malfeasance in prosecuting him. But but also, it's that uh, the things that the United States had classified at that time during the Vietnam war were things that should not have been classified. But so there's reasons under law to make, keep something secret. And many of them are understandable, uh, but uh, not embarrassing the government is not a reason to classify something. Uh, and, and a lot of the stuff that, uh, that Daniel Ellsberg released, just like much of what Daniel Hale and Chelsea Manning and, um, Julian Assange had, had leaks. Our country's enemies know all those things. Just as the, just as the North Vietnamese in the Vietnam War knew that the United States knew that it was losing. And, the, United, and the, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese government knew about the torture of prisoners and all these other things going on. So, so, so these were secrets that were kept from the United States not for national security, but to keep the the government from being embarrassed and for, because of political ramifications. So no, there's no, uh, there's no real reason. The, you know, the things that we, the things that have been, that have come to light are things that should have been come to light. You know, it's one of the axioms about democracy is democracy requires an informed electorate. You now that's, you know, government 101, you, you can't really have a democracy without if people don't know what's going on. And, uh, yeah, you know, clearly we don't. And these are people who have done, done their country a great service. You know, the, the situation with Daniel Hale, if we really were a country of laws, the Justice Department wouldn't be prosecuting Daniel Hale. They would say, who else knew about this and kept their mouth shut? <laughs> who knew these things? And didn't bring them to light Th- those would be the criminals who'd be hunted down and and, and 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 put in prison if it was a nation of laws but but it isn't
0: well there's another nation that, of laws and that's or non laws and that's Israel at the moment here we have the people of Gaza trapped in a little strip of land encircled by. Israel, my land, my sea, my air, and the bombers come again.
9: Yes, and no uh, n- no accountability. And the, the one of the horrors of it, you know, just recently is we saw with, with, with uh, Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and his fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman is Israel is making its peace with the Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, they're calling them the Abrahamic Accords, calling on Abraham. And what it really is is the powerful countries, you know, ganging up together and the Palestinians are are being you know, the support that they've had from those countries is, is is gone. And this fits into into the nuclear as well as all the the United States destroyed Iraq under the under the pretension that they had were building uh, a nuclear weapons program, uh, we're now sanctioning Iran, pulling out of the out of the the, the deal that, that, that was struck previously with Iran about nu- about um, being transparent about about their nuclear programs and stuff, which I think that they really were being. But Israel, the, what they call it, um, deniability, plausible deniability. Israel is in a very strange position where they, they, they want the world to know they have nuclear weapons, so people are scared of them, but they don't want to admit it publicly because then they're going to be accountable. And, of course, the United States knows they have nuclear weapons. It's another way the United States is violating the, the, the nuclear proliferation ban is, uh, treaty is, is by the, its support for Israel's nuclear weapons program, but it's, it, it's entirely destabilizing. Yeah, the the protocols that, that the U.S. is using have used to destroy Iran and now Iraq and now bother Iran are about keeping the Middle East free of nuclear weapons. But but we're not looking at not looking at Israel, and of course none, none of this could go on for another day without the diplomatic, economic, military support of the United States.
0: Well, we've just about gone full circle,
9: haven't we? Well, it's a big world. is a lot more. <laughs> There's lots more, isn't there? Unfortunately, there's, there's um, lots more. But it's at the same time, same time, there are people who are active and people who are trying to change things, people who are not cowed. That's what gives me hope.
0: Thank you for all the work you do, Brian, and continue to do and have done for decades and decades. And Brian, of course, was Brian Terrell, veteran anti-war activist in the U.S.,
3: Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650 1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter.
5: Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice.
4: 8.30am Wednesday. 7am Saturday.
3: Or listen on demand on 3CR's website 3cr.org.au. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Thank you, 3CR. We love you. At
0: the present time, we're witnessing Washington's war on Russia and China. But we need to look into the history of the U.S. empire as it has operated over the decades, indeed centuries, for a starting point in what has been termed innovative research by scholars Siddhartha Kushi and Monica Duff-Toft, we learn that since 9-11, the U.S. has increased military interventions to historic levels. America has conducted nearly 400 interventions since its founding, with more than a quarter in the last 30 years. This recent pattern of international relations, conducted largely through armed force, has been termed kinetic diplomacy, has increasingly targeted the Middle East and Africa. Half of those conflicts and other uses of force, including displays and threats of force, as well as covert and other operations, occurred between 1950 and 2019, the last year covered in this data. More than a quarter of them have taken place since the end of the Cold War. The United States has carried out 34% of its 392 interventions against countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, 23% in East Asia and the Pacific region, 14% in the Middle East and North Africa, and just 13% in Europe and Central Asia, according to this newly refined version of the military intervention. On the line is Dr. Tim Anderson. And Tim, you've seen this research.
7: Yes, I think that's a good, good to start with history like that. That's a study in the US on military interventions, and I think they revised the figure upwards to 500. But the interesting thing is that, so more than 100 military interventions by the US in the last 20 years. And that, uh, well, it's reinforced by other revelations recently proxy wars, basically, secret proxy wars. And the report on that recently said there'd been more than 20 in the last five years. So there's a very large scale of proxy war tensions short of outright what people used to speak of, you know, World War III. In other words, the old style confrontation between big states and although it's at risk, you would say in Ukraine, dozens of these other forces using contra forces and al-Qaeda forces and so on to divide and weaken. It's intensified as that port you cited, which is interesting because it's a period that coincides with the U.S gaining what it had in the 90, in the early 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union um, dominance over world affairs. Many North American theorists had, had uh, speculated this was needed for global stability to have a single that the world and creates other public goods you know, through the trading system and so on. Well, was the case? And my line on, on that is basically it's because Washington generally, before we get into any of the factions of US politics, um, preeminent place in the world, that they know that their economy has very long time for at least three probably more like five and of course they're being um, about to be surpassed by China in the next few years and that's even more dramatic if you look at the uh, adjustment of prices parity prior by, by China so the economic decline of the US and the pending decline of its dominant position in the world and um, it's happening right now and, and I suggest most of these small wars are happening as a result as a result of that and because the US is really trying to hang on to its position in Asia uh, in the Middle East, Latin America and in Africa too, wars are spread all throughout the world.
0: Who are those at the top who are directing all what's been happening in the last 30 years?
7: Large investment people, um, a group of, uh, behind what's called, the, the US President called it the military and industrial complex, but it's more financialised these days. So there is a group of giant corporations and government officials that effectively run and the, the, it's a presidential system where one person comes in and is supposed to act like a dictator and be the world. But in reality, there's a group, uh, there's a clique of people running it there. And that's why, between the administrations, between the Bush administration and Obama, between Obama and um, Trump, and between Trump and Biden, that continuity is because there is the same group of powerful corporations and government officials.
0: And compliance by. Other countries with what the US is doing.
7: Yes, it's a combination of things, isn't it? There's the US diplomatic um, arm, but there's also their economic influence. And so this group of uh, large corporations uh, can actually pitch on little countries, um, uh, and of course companies too. Because if, for example, uh, a Europe company wants to do business with iran the treasury can say to them okay if you want to do business with iran that's the end of your business in the usa basically so they have that power initially and since the second world war they have exercised that sort of economic power um, in particular the world bank the imf um, the wto aid with their european uh, associates and as well as their own Military uh, complex. Uh, the Pentagon, for example, has the world divided into sections. You know, there's AFRICOM, where the edge Africa, and CENTCOM, whereby the Pentagon pretends to manage West Asia or the Middle East. So there's a lot of tools at their disposal, despite the fact that, as I said before, the, the US economy has been in relative decline for several decades.
0: The fact over all those years, how they've been able to build up bases in so many countries around the
2: world.
7: That's right. They've got something like around 800 all around the world, and that's infrastructure, which um, in some cases is a semi-colonial relic of the Second World War. For example, there are still something like 30,000 U.S. troops in the southern Korea, really. Um, There are still tens of thousands of troops in Germany, for example. and, And Japan also is really pretty much integrated into this U.S. military system, and that's why um, there's so little independent will in some of these countries that seem otherwise very economically powerful, like Japan and Germany and, and the South of Korea, really. And then, um, there's that, there's that, um, coordination between the economic power and the military power. Now, the Pentagon in 2000 announced this doctrine called full spectrum dominance, by which they meant that the Pentagon was not about, you know, military operations to the United States of America. It was about dominating in communicationally, ideologically, economically, technologically, militarily. That has been the agenda explicitly in this century.
0: And where do you place Israel in this?
7: So Israel historically is a a type of colony set up, a European colony, European-Russian colony set up late in the colonial period. That is to say when Britain was withdrawing from India and the Dutch from Indonesia and so on. At the end of the colonial period, Zionist colony was created by a certain faction, actually a minority faction of European and Russian Jews, and they were agitating for a a type of homeland. It began when Europe was colonising all of Africa, and indeed there was at one time an offer from parts of East Africa, parts of Uganda, for this movement, but the Russian faction of Zionists had their eye on Palestine, and so in the end, after the Second World War, and with the impetus of the the attempt at genocide by the Germans, um, that brought around a lot of liberals in the world, and, and including liberal Jews, and so that's how the colony was established in Palestine um, as as a, as a part of the territory which the British had gained from the Ottoman Empire. The First World War, uh, you know, the French and the British effectively took most of that territory from Egypt through to. Iraq wasn't really involved because it, it wasn't that um, deeply involved in the First World War as it was in the Second World War. So the British set that up, allowed it to be set up. It wasn't by an act of the UN. There was a UN committee which recommended, without any input from the indigenous people in Palestine, a Jewish state and an Arab state and a special status for Jerusalem. And then the British pulled back and, and basically let the, the Zionists, a Jewish state, which was something that could have been contemplated in the colonial era. But remember, with the Charter a few years before, there was this idea of the illegitimacy of colonisation, the illegitimacy of and the, the defence of the system of foreign states and so on. So it created an anomaly from the very beginning. And then with the, with the rise of the US after the Second World War and sometime in the 50s, affected the British was its influence in the Middle East um, in, for example, Iran, in the, the, the Saudi partners and Israel. Effectively, U.S. became the, the main sponsor of Israel, inheriting it from the from the British Empire when when the British Empire was in decline. So Israel today functions in two sort of ways. It's a Zionist colony that's still got a fair degree of popularity amongst um, European and North American and Jewish people, but it's also a forward base for the U.S. and for NATO in particular. It allows them to try and control it linked to what we've seen for many decades, that that Israel is directly involved in attacks on all of its neighbours and aggravating uh, all of its Arab neighbours and the centre, effectively, of the region there. But that's intentional. It's something that the the British wanted and the US want to maintain. I think the current US President, Joe Biden, said back in the 80s, if there was no Israel, we'd have to create one. They need something like that as a a forward base, a, a major base in the Middle East.
0: So you see, Israel has been pivotal to the US's role in that Middle East and all those Middle Eastern conflicts.
7: Yes, it's a, it's a real asset. I um, mean, followed by the Saudis, who can provide oil and um, purchase lots of weapons and so on, and create these Al Qaeda terrorist groups to destabilise Arab countries and Saudi, the Saudis to the evil twins effectively of US outreach to the East and if they were not there of course the situation would be very different or alternatively if the, the US were not sponsoring and subsidized after the US, Germany major provider of weapons for example to Israel. If there wasn't that outside sponsorship there would be some sort, there would be some sort of normalization but of course when any big power intervenes, source of aggravation uh, like the British in the north of Ireland for example that aggravation just goes on on and on basically so but at the moment with the US ambitions to try and still although they're failing in many respects even though they're failing Israel is still very important to them as a, a means of having their foot in the region and not allowing good relationships with their much feared rivals Russia and China but of course that's exactly what's happening with the with the failing of these new Middle East wars.
0: And you mentioned before the control of many UN bodies that's an important
7: Avenue too. Well, I mentioned the bodies that were the, the multilateral bodies outside the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organization, NATO and so on, but you're right in the sense that many of these are, well, you, of the five permanent members of the Security Council are members of NATO, which are effectively locked into this series of wars in, in West Asia and Eastern Europe too, with the Ukraine conflict blowing up uh, bigger than it had before, so there are Influences. For example, on the Secretary General now, effectively the Antonio Guterres, for example, is really, in many respects, mouthing what the the NATO members of the Security Council have to do. Um, some other agencies in there, like the the Organization for the Control of Defense, has been suborned effectively by um, the NATO members of the UN there. So they still have a lot of influence there, where every state has has a has a vote, and sometimes translates into more independent agency. I've observed, for example, in Syria that while UNESCO has been prevented from helping rebuild world heritage in Syria, but nevertheless UNICEF for children and education is fairly strongly committed to helping the education system because I think it's a good system.
0: Looking at Ukraine and Russia, one thing I've read is that there's been the largest transfer of arms to Ukraine in history. And it's not just the US, it's all the Allies, and it's, of course it's Australia as well. Where's that going to end?
7: Well, the, the Russian um, uh, chief diplomat in the UN recently a diplomatic solution in sight, and they were preparing for a very long conflict. This is what the US has wanted. Of course it's raised because uh, the US the deep state in the U.S. is dominated by the more liberal side of things. They were uh, the elite chappy with the Obama, Clinton, uh, Biden type of approach to politics in terms of its external outreach has spoken for for the last uh, 15 years or so, uh, that is to say where they are pursuing their objectives, not through direct orientation necessarily or through direct economic muscle, but by using third parties, by proxy wars, by using economic power, propaganda campaigns, for example, there's a recent report on the extent of CIA involvement in the moderation and control of Facebook, which is now the biggest media organisation in the world effectively. There are three billion members on Facebook, not me anymore, but three billion people. It's a huge factor and the US is very heavily towards um, across social media as well as the other factors there. So this type of smart power relies on exactly the sort of thing that's happening in Ukraine in the sense that Ukraine is really being used as a tool against Russia to divide and weaken Russia. It was being used, of course, we know that the US has been militarily training troops for the the Russian counter-response earlier this year, which is a lot of people are thinking this is when the war began in February this year, no end to this war. And at the moment, we'd be very happy for Ukrainian troops to be sources like Germany and to be providing weapons but as I said there are in Europe that are going to price for destroying their normal relationship with Russia which was supply a range of things including uh, fuel and food and like that so um, the tensions between the US and and Europe are probably going to be the thing to watch
0: Well that's the proxy war against Russia but China's a different story isn't it?
7: Yes they're all different uh, in different circumstances but you've seen in recent years that the U.S. has focused on areas segment or or carve off or in some way create a, a focus. And one of them was Sink Young and the whole idea of uh, the myth that there was a, a genocide of Uyghur people, the Uyghur Muslim people, as if the U.S. cared about Muslim people having bombed the, virtually the entire Middle East. But there was that focus on uh, Sink Young and trying to pretend there's a huge human rights sort of black hole there. This is the propaganda weapon of choice in recent decades, isn't it? Two systems approach with uh, the Nancy Pelosi that it wasn't part of China. Um, Whereas the relationship between Taiwan, of course, smooth in many respects and, and indeed opinion polls show that most people have the status quo there, which is going on indefinitely, but nevertheless the status quo where they have, they consider themselves Chinese and um, the see is supported by most of the world. They're happy with that if they can do their thing. They want destabilisation because if they can create a new Ukraine in Taiwan, of course the people in Taiwan will have a hopeless war if they manage to buy the uh, the Chinese, the, the People's Republic of China, there to prevent Taiwan being turned into a U.S. military base. And there are already apparently U.S. military personnel there involved in training and so on then the U.S. would be happy. Other people would be paying the price for them. They can, what they see, as a big rival. Um, China's a big rival. Russia's a big rival. Anything they can do to divide them, destabilise them, weaken them, turn the world against them in some propaganda war, economically isolate the sort of approach the U.S. takes these days. say the same thing for Iran, because Iran's the big independent state in the Middle East. But surely,
2: when
0: you look at... The conflicts that America is involved with over the years or now, whether it's a proxy war or an all-out war, it must be so overstretched economically. It can't keep on spending forever, surely.
2: That's
7: true. You know, there are historians who have written about this, they've written about It's always associated with, famously, I suppose, the attempts by Napoleon and Hitler, and they failed at Moscow each time, didn't they? It was a case of overstretch. In this case, we've had a dominant um, USA since the Second World War, but armed with a number of international institutions, uh, not least the fact that the world is keeps buying dollars and now that interest rates are going up in the US and going up everywhere else, um, it's temporarily strengthening the dollar once again, even though in terms of usage, Significantly less in international trade these days because the fact is, effectively, the rest of the world has been financing the U.S. power uh, through the dollar and the dollar it's through the SWIFT system, which is, by which the U.S. monitors a banking transaction, but the U.S. effectively controls it. And it means that, for example, um, if um, one of the dozens of countries that the U.S. has uh, they can block those. We see. Russia and China mobilising some new system and to place much reliance on the dollar, basically. So, th- so in other words, the the US uh, influence in the world has been extended, really, by its- these evidence.
0: Where does cultural hegemony come into this, Tim?
7: Well, it's very important for for the propaganda wars, hasn't it? We've got more highly educated populations than ever before. It's something I'm very aware of, having worked in universities for a few decades. Uh, and yet the the level of disinformation not just disinformation but the level of persuasion is incredible these days i i think tend to think that propaganda these days is far more sophisticated far more investment is made in it than ever before than the the cruder sort of propaganda sometimes told uh, or you know reminded of in in documentaries from back to the 30s and 40s you know and there were recent articles i was reading recently about the, the role of Hollywood that's very important too the role of Hollywood in the US about their own history and the Cowboys and Indians stories and so on but also Walt Disney himself was a sympathizer a Nazi sympathizer who was involved with um, the Nazis and some of their operations he was conscripted into the US war effort and then after the Second World War it was to soften Afghans into the, the role of the North Americans and the World Bank and so on so there there's as I mentioned before, the penetration of social media was called fact checkers, pretty much all um, sourced back to US government funding, basically, but also through, through Hollywood.
0: So, just how important do you believe social media has been for the US?
7: In terms of disempowering um, domestic opposition, you know, that's why each new have these human rights justifications, and of course, to, to, to do that, in face of what the U.S. in literal interventions in recent years, requires some sort of skill and some sort of skill. In, I think it's very important to diffuse, let's say, the reaction we saw. There was a lot of strong opposition that didn't stop the invasion of Iraq, but there was prosecution of that war a little bit more difficult at the time. But with the psychological wars around or the, the, the so-called exercise of so-called Smart power to destroy Libya and attempt to destroy Syria, we saw it more effective because uh, effectively people who might otherwise have spoken out against those wars were Either they were sucked into the idea that there was some new human rights crusade or they were so confused that they were disempowered and decided to, to stand aside and say nothing because maybe it wasn't a war at all. I mean, m- many people were otherwise well educated people were saying, oh, This is not really a war, this is some sort of zone, or we're trying to you know prevent a dictator killing his own people and so on the same sort of lines that they're using against Vladimir Putin at the moment there is all this sort of about the personality of Putin
0: where do you see the so-called democracy in the United States heading
7: it's difficult for me to say you know because there's elections in the US that, that outsiders talk about and I'm no specialist in in US politics but there are certainly many contradictions not least the fact that they do not have the social protection that even we in Australia have or the Europeans have. They don't have guaranteed health care. Their social security is far more contingent. And, and of course, um, as you mentioned before, the extension into these, to all of these foreign wars and, and pouring billions of dollars into the latest war is sucking all what they had to invest home um social infrastructure. You know, there are people making things about now the, the quality of, for example, the train systems in China compared to the train systems so in Taiwan. So there are a lot of problems at home, but I can't really say with any with any claim to expertise where it's heading.
0: And I've been speaking with Dr Tim Anderson just to reiterate that research that I began with at the interview that Since 9-11, the U.S. has increased military interventions to historic levels, conducting nearly 400 interventions since its founding. More than a quarter of them have taken place since the end of the Cold War. The United States has carried out 34% of those 392 interventions against countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, 23% in East Asia and the Pacific region, 14% 14% in the Middle East and North Africa, and just 13% in Europe and Central Asia.
2: i you, me, day come together and sit down by the fire.
4: Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunjalini, at the fire, Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty, and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bunjil's Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR.
5: No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now.
3: Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population yet represent 29% of the general prison population.
5: 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced.
3: East Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on East Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
5: Hi, my name is John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we put together a program called the Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all
3: about your records, John A., Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for the Sporting Record. Right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock.
7: All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known
3: as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all, with their heavenly harmonies, songs and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre, 11th of October, with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on
7: the Weekend at SeaWorks in Williamstown, 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters
2: of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry. Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers and all. So it went for Joseph Warren.
0: Today I'm speaking with Professor Peter Stanley, public and academic historian for over 30 years. Professor Stanley is an expert in several fields, including Australian military history, history in museums, the military history of British India, and the history of surgery. But it's Australian history that's the topic today, and specifically military history, with a focus on the Australian War Memorial and its failure to accept the fact of frontier conflict, which Professor Stanley states has stained the continent for over a century after 1788. And he also has a great deal of knowledge about the memorial, having worked there as principal historian. Professor Stanley, before we talk specifically about the War Memorial and its stance on the frontier wars, can I ask you about your interest in studying military wars? A large number of people have these interests And I'm wondering what this research tells you about times, places, and people you focus on.
5: Yes, Jan. I started as a military historian, I think, when I was a teenager. And like a lot of teenagers, I used to play war games in the 1970s. And so I had an interest in in military history. And then as I went to university and became a professional historian, I kept that interest in military history. But, of course, I realized that, that wars are not just about battles and not just about medals and things. They're actually about people, and they're about serious effects on people. And the more I did research and went into my PhD and then worked as a historian, the more I realized that actually these things are really important and that they shouldn't just be left to military historians or people who just think wars are interesting. They're things that, that are meaningful to all of us. And in Australia, the, the Australians have always been interested in their military history, uh, and it's been important to them, but they've never really been interested in, in all of their military history. And so uh, when I was working on what actually be- was my first book in 1986, I realized there was this thing called frontier conflict. Reynolds was doing work in the fact that frontier conflict was much more important than anyone had ever suspected. And so I became interested in understanding what frontier for war was, that we weren't paying enough attention to it.
0: All right, well, I'll come back to that, but I want to ask you first about your special interest in the Australian Moor Memorial. Many people now see it as a, an educational place, um, maybe an entertainment place. Kids have bussed in or flown in from many parts of Australia. It's the obligatory place to go when you go to Canberra. Take us back to November 1941 when the memorial was open. Who was behind that?
5: Yes, that's right. Well, the the memorial story really goes back 20-odd years before that, but it did open in Canberra in November 1941, opened by the Governor general, who famously said when he was opening it that the the memorial was a protest against war. He finished his speech with, never again, never again. So there was a strong drive to remember not just the glories of the Great War, but also the cost. But it really went back to about 1916 when the Australian official correspondent, the journalist Charles Bean, realised that the Australian Imperial Force, especially on the Western Front, was suffering very heavy losses and he wanted to commemorate the the deaths of those men and to make them aware of the magnitude of their loss and their contribution to the war. And, And he worked out that the best way to do this, apart from writing the official history which he went on to do, was to create what he regarded as a war memorial museum. So the memorial has always been more than one thing. It's always been a memorial. It's always been a museum. It's always been a research centre. It's done those things in different ways over the years and it's become other things. As you say, it's now an educational place, a place of propaganda at times, uh, a political institution at at other times. But it's always been a memorial where Australians can can go and, and research and learn and think and they should be able to do those things and then discuss what they've found.
0: Now, the act was changed, or there was a new act in 1980. How did that alter or change from the original?
5: Yeah, that's that's a really decisive moment in the memorial's history. Uh, before 1980, the memorial did most of the things that it does now. It was the centre of commemoration, and it, had success- it progressively expanded to include not just the First World War, but then the Second World War, and then as the, the parliamentarians who put the PAD Act in 1984, it encompassed all Australia's wars. What it also said the memorial was to do was to actively research, and, and it said disseminate Australian military history. And that's uh, coincidentally exactly the time when I came to the memorial as a very young historian, and was part of that effort to... Disseminate Australian military history in all sorts of ways, and conferences, and books, and journals, and articles, and talks, and films, all sorts of things, all to the good. But what the what the memorial did was to to then say, yes, that's what we do, but we do it for Australian military history. And Australian military history in the 1980 Act was defined as the wars and warlike activities, warlike operations of Australian military forces. And and what they meant by that was, was formal military forces raised in Australia.
2: Henry Reynolds
5: and and his colleagues started to talk about frontier conflict and people said, including me, why isn't the memorial about frontier conflict? And the response that, that we've had for 40 odd years has been, oh but there weren't any Australian raised units fighting in frontier conflict. Eventually the memorial came to realize that there was a thing called frontier conflict and it really did happen. But it it sort of says that there's nothing we can do about it because it it wasn't fought by Australian units. Well, there's a couple of problems there. The first problem is that it actually was fought by units raised in Australia. For 30-odd years, there was an engraving hanging in the the colonial gallery, which I was the historian on, and it depicted British-mounted police, military-mounted police, fighting Aborigines. And that unit was raised in Sydney in 1825. So just on that ground alone, it's not true that, that... Australian race units weren't fighting. But the other reason that that response is inadequate is that wars aren't about legality, they're about power. And the, the, the frontier conflict mostly was fought on the, the, the settler side, uh, mostly civilians, police, settlers, squatters, stockmen. On the indigenous side, of course, it was fought by adult Aboriginal men who were wielding weapons, uh, although its victims included Aboriginal women, women and children, of course. The only wars we recognise are wars fought by formed military forces is just flying in the face of reality, because the reality of the frontier conflict is is that there was no formed formal fighting forces, but it was definitely a war, and you can't find a, an historian in Australia, especially not a specialist in colonial Australia, who will concede that the, that the frontier conflict didn't exist. So the war Memorial, I think is hanging on to this outdated and unrealistic definition of what war is, when we know, and certainly Aboriginal people know, that in fact there was a war fought across this continent for more than a century, and that tens of thousands of Indigenous people died in it. And that's what I think the War Memorial should be recognising and also remembering.
0: Well, Peter, what or who are they protecting?
5: That's a very good question, Jan, and I think the answer to that is they're protecting ANZAC, The word Anzac means a huge amount in this country, of course. It's come to stand for the way Australians participate war, the way Australians remember war. And the memorial is intimately connected with that very strong sense of ownership of Anzac. But if you look at the War Memorial Act again, see what the Act says, the Act actually doesn't even mention Anzac. So people have come to regard the memorial as only being a place to remember, if you like, the good things about Australia's wars. So, it'll remember things like sacrifice and bravery. It'll remember comradeship and mateship. It'll remember people being dedicated to their fellows, to their country, to their service, to their units. It's acquired the connotation that we'll only remember things that we think are the good things about Australia's wars, which is silly, really. I mean, when you think of it, the First World War was fought for no good reason for Australia. It was inevitable. Australia was part of the British Empire, it had no choice. But let's not kid ourselves that that war wasn't a, a huge tragedy. So the memorial like, is protecting ANZAC from being what it sees, I think, as tainted or sullied or contaminated by a war which we we all know was a very dirty war indeed. The frontier conflicts were basically wars of extermination. Indigenous people were either exterminated massacres, or because their relationship to are so much assailed by disease and alcohol and the disintegration of their society so if you like the people who who are responsible for the memorial don't really want to see that degree of realism, that degree of honesty introduced into something that they they think is sacred and are trying to protect.
0: Well let's talk about those people who are in charge of the memorial, the directors the boards over the years the politicians who are in charge over those years has there been any of those, I'd say they're mainly men, who have tried to change things even a little bit, or have they all towed the line?
5: A really important issue. Um, Over the years, and I've got to say I'm partly responsible for this because I used to be principal historian at the memorial. I worked there for 27 years. And I can remember both attempts to get frontier conflict recognised. The Labour parliamentarian Elaine Darling in the 1980s tried to get frontier conflict recognised. And it was, if you like, too soon. It was premature. And I can remember I was part of a meeting at the memorial in about 1992 or thereabouts, of which we sat around with the National Museum and basically we said, look, we can't handle frontier conflict. The National Museum should be the place for it. And indeed, they said, yes, of course, that's an important part of Australian history. And when the newest National Museum of Australia opened in in 2001, there was a, a big section dealing with frontier conflict, and that's allowed the memorial to get out of it. Now, along the the way, the memorial's made a couple of changes. I mean, one is that now the people who run the memorial, and we might talk about them in a minute, they now accept that frontier conflict was a real thing. It really did happen. But they still say that they can't deal with it because of the the legality of the the War Memorial Act. That's the, the strange thing. I think we're in a period, because the memorial, they're certainly not stupid, and they certainly should know their Australian history. And they know as well as anyone that the Australians are increasingly saying, this conflict occurred, what are we going to do about it? If we want reconciliation to happen in this country, surely recognising the truth of frontier conflict is a part of the journey towards reconciliation. And they've done a few things. So Brendan Nelson, the former liberal politician who was director of the Royal from 2013 to 2019, although he has recognised frontier conflict, he then went out and, and with a very large amount of money, bought some abstract paintings which depicted frontier maskers. Now, why would you do that if you weren't then going to recognise frontier conflict? But it still hasn't yet. And then the memorial did a very good thing. It went out in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, 2012 thereabouts, and it started to engage seriously with indigenous communities. And, And to its very great credit, one of the things that it's done is to really put indigenous service and sacrifice into the memorial. We talked about this in the the, the 1990s and 2000s. We said that that's what we were doing. The memorials really embrace that now, and all credit to them for doing it. But the problem is is that the very good things they've done about recognising Indigenous service post-1901 in the defence of Australia has become a smokescreen to cloud the issue. So people say, what about Indigenous conflict? And they say, oh, yes. We're dealing very fully with the ways in which indigenous people have served in the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and they'll, they'll trot out individuals, you know, Reg Saunders, Len Waters, the man Parker that, that they just found who was indigenous and died in the Boer War. That's all good. Why isn't the War Memorial recognizing one of the most costly wars that's ever been fought in Australia? So who's responsible for this? That was your question. And the answer is, is that it's, it's hard to, to pin exactly who's responsible The memorial has a director. The present director is a man called Matt Anderson. He seems to be carrying out a plan which has been devised by others. Who who else has devised this plan? Well, Brendan Nelson, the previous director, who's now the chairman of the memorial's council, he seems to have quite a strong voice in in the the policies the memorial sets and follows. Council is mostly ex-service people, uh, or the present council reflects very much the fact that it was liberal coalition governments that we're appointing the council over the past ten years or so. So, it's got a very strong conservative bent. It's already very conservative anyway, because it's there to, to, to commemorate the dead of, of Australia's wars. It's there to it sees to protect ANZAC. So, it's not really going to embrace what it sees as a radical cause. I'd say that acknowledging frontier war isn't radical anymore. It's mainstream.
0: You're saying than that,
5: that I think we've got to look to the Australian Parliament and indeed the Australian people.
0: You're saying that Nelson got the paintings up on the walls but was there a story to go with those paintings or they are just paintings on the wall?
5: That's a very good question. I don't know. But what they don't depict is, if you like, black people being killed. They're abstract. And I honestly no, I think it signals that there is a change. As I said this is we're in a period of transition. I think the memorial, those people who run it, are increasingly recognising, and, and the, the discussion lately about the indigenous voice is bringing this to the fore. I think they realise they've got to do something, but they've got to balance the desire to recognise frontier conflict against the desire to protect Anzac. And I think they're, now, they're still torn. So buying those paintings I think was really interesting because it, it said to me that Brendan Nelson knew that he had to do something but I don't think he was brave enough to actually do anything radical, like recognizing frontier conflict, something that he said he wouldn't do. He said, not on my watch. Well, maybe his successor, Matt Anderson, will be brave enough. It isn't just their fault. I mean, I started working the memorial in 1980, and since then we've had six or eight Australian governments. And every single one of them has not decided to get the War Memorial, which is a government agency. Every single one of them has not pushed the War Memorial to do something about frontier conflict. So, the Albanese government, which is, on the very night that Anthony Albanese was elected, uh, he talked about the the Uluru Statement from the heart, he talked about truth-telling, he talked about reconciliation. You know, it's possible that that's going to happen now, because Anthony Albanese has a mandate. For decades, for 40-odd years, successive Australian governments, I think, have failed us by not following the history, accepting the reality, and saying to the place where Australia remembers war dead, I think it's time to remember the war dead of the frontier conflicts. And that's, I think, what, what has to happen now.
0: And it's just another slap in the face of the Aboriginal communities that this is not happening.
5: Yeah, and that's, I think, that, that's a really important point because for, as a, for years, I well, should recognise frontier conflict. But then I realised about 10 years ago, that most of the people who were arguing this were basically white historians. And I thought, unless the Indigenous community want this, then it probably won't happen. And interestingly, just last week, the Indigenous academic, Professor John Maynard, from the University of Newcastle, came out, and he said that, that War Memorial should recognise frontier conflict. And I think that's a sign that the Indigenous community... I mean, why would they expect a conservative, basically white institution to, to be positive towards their history. You know, everything, all of their experience says you can't trust them, you don't expect anything from them, they won't give you what, you what you really want. Well, maybe, maybe some indigenous people now are saying, well, actually, maybe that's changing. I mean, I do hope it changes, because if the voice referendum goes down, and if the War Memorial continues to reject the legitimate calls of the Aboriginal people to be, for their conflict to be then that would be a, another slap in the face to the Indigenous community. And that would be a great tragedy. That would put the cause of reconciliation in this country back 20 years. So I really hope that the long Memorial gets a realistic idea of our history and gets brave enough to say, yes we commemorate Anzac, but we also are here to commemorate the dead of a war which happened across our continent. It happened on the soil that we live on. We need to recognise that fact.
0: And not just in one place, in many, many places. And I'm quite sure that the historians haven't unearthed all the, all the massacres that happened and it will take a long, long time to get that, if ever.
5: Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the great things that's happened over the past 20-odd years is that, well, two things have happened. One is that communities indigenous communities have started to talk about their own history I mean previously it was something that they kept secret because it was their grief. White Australia wasn't interested well White Australia is interested now and and they're talking about what's happened with their communities and their peoples and there's a documentary on SBS next month called The Australian Wars made by Rachel Perkins and that will tell some stories of some massacres told by people of those communities. So that, that's one thing that's happening at a local level. And the other thing is is that, is that Australian communities right across the continent are starting to acknowledge that those things happened in their communities. So you can go to some places and you can see memorials which record the fact that a massacre happened. But as you say, and, and there's been a lot of research on it too, there's been some terrific work being done again at the University of Newcastle, uh, University of Tasmania, University of North Queensland. All of which are documenting the sites where a massacres happened and the numbers of people who were, who were killed. Not always accurately or, or completely because the records just aren't there. But there is a lot to be found and there's certainly a lot to be shown about that. And that's, and that's one of the pressures that I think that's coming on the War Memorial. I had an interesting experience. I, I taught, I'm a, a, a research professor at UNSW Canberra, the Australian Defence Force Academy. And when I taught a, Australian military history a couple of years ago we used to give quizzes and in, in the quiz in one week in the colonial military history section I said to the cadets name the indig- any, any indigenous people in Australia and every single student, these are young officer, officer trainees in the Australian Defence Force, every single one of them could name the indigenous people, often the indigenous people from the place they came from and to me, and that surprised me that they could all do it, but it tells me that young Australians are interested in and knowledgeable about and prepared to be truthful about the history of black-white relations in this country. And old institutions like the War Memorial, run by, as you say, a bunch of old white men, however well-meaning they are, they can't stonewall forever. They've got to start recognising the truth.
0: And although many of those massacres happened a long, long time ago, there are still some that are in the living memory of Aboriginal people
5: now. Yeah, that's right. The, the latest ones that historians identify are in the 1920s, which is it's, I like, there's nobody a lie but what we also know about Indigenous culture is, is that it's often an oral culture. It passes stories on. And there are people alive today who can certainly tell you of the experiences of their, their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And those stories are transmitted and they're surprisingly accurate and historians have checked this some historians trust oral history and and they'd be right to be a bit skeptical but oral culture oral culture has a tendency to get it right maybe not in the numbers maybe not in the detail but to basically get the story right
1: told those stories
5: and so there are certainly indigenous people today and you'll see them on in rachel Perkins' documentary the australian wars who will tell you about massacres even though they weren't there that they know about them because they were, they've been told about them and those, just like Australians I mean, I mean, people all the time will tell me about their grandfather who was on the Somme in 1916 well guess what, indigenous people do that too but it's not the Somme in 1916 it's the Murray River in the 1840s or it's Central Queensland in the 1870s or it's Northwest Australia in the 1910s and those stories are still being told and they're still true and we need to
2: acknowledge that
0: Similar countries colonial countries like the United States, Canada, New Zealand, do they have institutions similar to what we have with the War Memorial and do they commemorate the frontier wars in those countries?
5: Yes, the short answer to that is, for example, New Zealand and Canada have both got very good military museums. The New Zealand Army Museum at Waiuru is really good. And the Canadian War Museum in uh, Ottawa is fantastic. And both of those museums uh, acknowledge the, their frontier wars, you know, the, the, the land wars in New Zealand, 1840 to 1870s, and, they and in Canada, they acknowledge the long series of frontier conflicts from the 17th century up to the 20th century. So they, they're honest about it. The difference is, is that those institutions, unlike the Australian War Memorial, they don't commemorate, they 're museums they just, they just tell the story they, they interpret history, and I used to think that the World war memorial was stronger and richer because it commemorated as well as interpreted and now i 'm not so sure because because it 's got that devotion to Anzac and that that idea that it 's commemorating the brave dead, that the colonial wars, if you like, on the white side, were fought by the dispossessing and massacring people. So, so the commemoration is actually getting in the way for Australia, but other countries can do it. You know, South Africa had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it's helped that country heal from centuries of racial discrimination. New Zealand's bicultural policy is streets ahead of ours. Canada acknowledges, you know, the recent, the Pope's visit, acknowledges the importance of doing the right thing for indigenous Canadians. It needs to acknowledge the pain of its history and to remember it equally. You know, Gallipoli is not more important than the massacres in Tasmania in the 1810s. It's all part of the Australian story and privileging Gallipoli and effectively forgetting about the Black War in Tasmania is is just, as you said before, is just a slap in the face.
0: If you acknowledge the reluctance of the director and the board to will acknowledge the frontier wars. Does it need an act of parliament to actually force this issue onto the memorial?
5: Yeah, I I think so. I I wrote an op-ed recently, and I said exactly that. It actually doesn't need a new act of parliament. It needs a tiny change to the wording of the 1980 Act, which otherwise is, is, you know, it's fine. It's served the memorial for 40-odd years. There's nothing much wrong with it, except that, by the, the legalistic reading of that legislation, it's given conservative people who don't acknowledge the truth of history an excuse to not deal with frontier conflict. So I'm saying the act needs to be amended. Now, that's something the Parliament does every session. You know, lots of acts get amended. It gives it a, a try, and then it realises that actually that, that legislation is not working. We need to change it. We need to revise it. We need to learn from our experience. And there's no reason why the War Memorial Act also can't be changed, can't be revised and amended. It's a good opportunity maybe to have a a discussion about it. And this is the thing, that, that Parliament hasn't debated the Australian War Memorial and its purpose, its functions, since the late 1970s. It's let the memorial get on and do it, and the memorial's basically buggered it up, because the memorial hasn't been brave enough to acknowledge that history changes, and as historical understanding changes for Parliament the people who represent the Australian people, to have a discussion about what the memorial's for and what it should be doing. And look, it it might end up deciding that there's nothing wrong and frontier conflict doesn't deserve to get commemorated. I think that would be a great shame because it would be, I think, a a disgrace for us to, to, again, slap Aboriginal people in the face. But the Australian Parliament should be given the chance to debate this question
0: aboriginal people in that parliament now
5: can they act as well exactly yep um so lynn Burney, the minister for indigenous affairs is getting representations so this is the other thing for the walmart they might want to do it themselves before they get made to do it uh, because i'm pretty sure that lynn burney has got a lot on her plate you know she's got to steer the voice referendum she's got representations from all sorts of people the indigenous people across the country who rightly expect things from the new government, but one of the things that she might pay attention to is the fact that this is a block against true reconciliation and it's time to do something about it. So the War Memorial might find Linda comes knocking on their door door one day.
0: Final words, Peter?
5: Well, just to say thank you, Jan, for uh, taking an interest in this. I think it's a really important issue for Australians and the more we talk about it, then the better. So I hope all of your listeners will will have a think about this. If they feel moved, write to their Member of Parliament, their their MHR, write to their Senator, write to the Minister for Veterans Affairs who runs the War Memorial, who's responsible for the War Memorial. Write to the War Memorial. Matt Anderson's the Director, GPO Box 345, Canberra City, ACT 2601. And let them know what you think. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Jan. That's great.
0: I was speaking with public and academic historian Professor Peter Stanley. That was an interview that I recorded a couple of weeks ago. Professor Stanley mentioned that the Australian War Memorial had managed to find some Australian Aborigines involved in long-ago wars. And now the memorial has, for the first time, published a list of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander soldiers who served in Vietnam. An accurate count of the number of First Australians who fought in the conflict could not be released until now, the report goes, as it was not recorded at the time of recruitment. So far, the War Memorial says it has confirmed that 250 Indigenous soldiers had served in the conflict, but that list was expected to grow. But when it comes to acknowledging the frontier wars, silence.